0: Father, we approach you with a sense of joy. We have joy unspeakable because we stand redeemed. We shall never bear the punishment for our sins, for you laid that on Christ. The burden, (laughs) the burden that was lifted off when you purchased us, has given us new perspective. We are not the same. For we have experienced the Spirit's regeneration. So we come to you with a sense of joy. But we also come to you with a sense of anticipation. We are anticipating your word to do its work in our sanctification. The pottery wheel is out. And you're about to smooth rough edges. And press and mold the out of place into something beautiful. We need that work done among us. We need you to refine, to do detail work on us. Keep us moldable, Lord. So we come to you with a sense of joy. We come to you with a sense of anticipation. And we come to you with a sense of wonderment. We know we are about to sit under your gospel And as this gospel is preached, it will draw and repel. It will be seen as beautiful to some and disgusting to others. Your gospel is a fan. A fan which drives away the chaff, but leaves the wheat safely in its place. Because you came to us, we come to your word. This is our corporate plea. Amen. Amen. Let's open our Bibles to the pastoral epistle of 1 Corinthians. (laughs) It's at least been reading like a pastoral epistle. There's a lot of instructions for pastors. There's a lot of encouragement for pastors and a lot of warnings for pastors. You think this letter was written to pastors, but it wasn't. It was written to a local church. Apparently, the church needed to be taught about pastors. Pastors don't simply teach the church. The church needs to be taught about pastors. You need to be pastored concerning pastors. God gifted the church with pastors. And you need to know how to handle the gift. Now, some of you are thinking, wait, Kyle, I'm picking up on something. Is this going to be about pastors? (laughs) Kyle, I'm, I'm not a pastor. So peace out, Cub Scout. Come get me when you have something more relevant. Well, if that's you, you're likely a very young Christian. And there are many of you here whether you've been in the faith for 40 years or been in the faith for four weeks, you are going to approach this portion of Scripture asking, why is this section about pastors important for me? I'll give you seven reasons. You don't have to write them down. Just let them wash over you. One, you come from a Corinthian celebrity culture and you bring that mindset into your view of pastors. You come from a Corinthian celebrity culture, and you bring that mindset into your view of pastors. You, like this church, view pastors incorrectly. You harm a pastor when you give him celebrity status. That's never been God's intention for his shepherds. It would be a shame for God to give us a book on how to view pastors. And at the end, we come out still viewing pastors incorrectly. Do you still not yet understand that God saves not through the gifts of his pastors, but through the word of his cross? Why is this section about pastors important for you? Two, because Satan is a great fabricator. Everything God creates, Satan imitates. God has his pastors and Satan has his pastors. Both are behind pulpits. Both are on YouTube. Both will try to teach you with their doctrine. You need to be able to discern between a biblical pastor and one of Satan's fabrications. Three, some of you aspire to be a pastor. You need to evaluate the Bible's teaching on a pastor and make sure you know what you're getting into. Four, some of you are not Christians. And you view pastors like aliens or cult leaders. And you need to know what God says about a pastor. Five, this text doesn't simply address how to view a pastor It also addresses how to view yourself. Nearly everything in this text that refers to pastors are found in other places in your Bible referring to all Christians. This text helps you correctly view pastors and yourself. That's what I titled this exposition, Correctly Viewing Pastors and Ourselves. These seven verses are not some historical treatise That really does not have any relevance for our lives. It has extreme relevance. It will help you be a more faithful church member. This text will call you to evaluate your thoughts and motives. And it will lead you to repentance of sin. This text will lead you to dependence on Christ for the forgiveness of those sins. Why is this section about pastors important for you? Six, this text shows you how a pastor is to treat you and how you are to treat a pastor. If either of those are ever violated, it could create an abused church member or a defeated pastor. How many texts speak directly about the communication and relationship between a pastor and his people? (laughs) This one does. Why is this section about pastors important for you? Seven. Some of you will not stay in this church. You will move away because of your job. You need to base your next church on if the pastors meet the qualifications laid out in the text. If they themselves don't have a biblical view of a pastor, they aren't worthy of the office. All right. Enough time setting the table. Let's eat. Verse 1. This is how one should regard us. Let's stop here. How should you regard us? Who is in the us? That's Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. This verse points back to chapter 3, verse 22. This is not referring just to Paul's ministry, just apostolic ministry, but all these church leaders. The us includes apostles of Christ, but is not limited to them. Ap- Apollos wasn't an apostle. He was a pastor. This is how one, that's the church at Corinth, should regard us That's preachers, elders, ministers. How are you to view pastors? How should you regard preachers of the gospel? To get specific, how should you view your local pastors? Kyle Sharon, Daniel Hurd, Dan Herbster. How should you view those three? The Bible speaks to this. It's walked out plainly for us. Now, you want to avoid extremes when it comes to evaluating pastors. People often are stuck in a massive pendulum swing. They go from preacher hate to preacher worship. Both are incorrect. Paul's been talking in the book about how their overinflated view of ministers has caused problems. And now he says, this is how you should view them. Don't view them like you've been viewing them. Regard them this way As servants of Christ. Verse 1. This is how one should regard us. As servants of Christ. This Greek word translated into English as servant. Is not doulos. The typical Greek word for servant in the New Testament. Nor is it diakonos. A secondary word used for servant in the New Testament. This is huperates. This is a nautical word that refers to slaves rowing on a boat. This is the word for galley slaves. They were the under rowers on a ship. Hupa meaning under, retes meaning rower, under rowers. Now you may have seen pictures of maritime people in the ancient world. Warships with 150 galley slaves. 25 to an oar. 45 foot long paddles passing through the side of the ship. Six slaves chained to each oar. There were usually three decks of rowers within the same ship. The top deck would have the lowest, the longest oars because theirs had to reach the furthest. The middle deck a little shorter oar because they were closer to the bottom. The under rowers rode on the bottom deck, the lowest level, the lowest tier. They had the shortest oars. It was the least desirable deck. They were the recipients of all the urine and feces and dirt from above falling on them. The bottom deck was the hottest as well. This was the grim life of a galley slave. Corinth was an active seaport and frequently docked Roman war galleys. The church was well aware of this ship and the engine that propelled it. Galley slaves. The under rowers were the lowest of the low. Nobody knew who they were. Nobody cared who they were. They were the most menial, the most despised. They faced the cruelest punishment and the hardest labor. They were stuck with the most unenviable task With everything falling on them from above, they smelled like, well, they didn't smell good. They worked themselves to the bone. They labor and labor and labor. Galley slaves aren't allowed to be lazy or to look for an easy way out. There's nothing comfortable or prestigious about being a galley slave. So church, what does this teach you about how to view your pastors? View your pastors like under rowers. They are not captains of the ship. They merely labor to keep the ship moving forward. We are not in the captain's seat. We are on the bottom deck. Jesus pilots our ship, and we are his galley slaves. It's our job to get passengers safely to the shore. Paul uses servile language instead of executive vocabulary to describe pastors. Jesus asked his pastors to be slaves for him. Church, respect your pastors, honor your pastors, but your pastors are not worthy of your ultimate loyalty or attachment. Do not view me like the captain of this ship. I am a galley slave. And it's here that I want to give you an application for current and future pastors. So, you want to be a pastor, That's what I thought about titling this sermon. So, you want to be a pastor. Prestigious? No. Pastoring is nothing like that. The demands of Christian leadership, pastoring a local church, is like being a galley slave. It's not meant to be glamorous. Don't ever use business terminology referring to the church. I run the church. I'm the director of the church, the executive of the church. You're the galley slave of the church. Nothing more. If you are assigned a leadership position in the church, is this how you think of it? Nobody aspires to be a galley slave. We always talk to our kids about what they want to be when they grow up. None of them ever say a galley slave. You don't decide to be a pastor. You're enslaved to pastor. You can't do anything else. Your heart beats for it like a bird's heart beats to fly. And the heart of a fish beats to swim. It's what you're called to do. There are no plan B's. You have to pastor like a cheetah has to run, like a lion has to roar. It's inherently a lowly position, but you want it. You know what else is implied? Pastoring is not easy. It involves sweat and hard labor. It's bottom floor galley slave stuff. Work, work, work. I have known a few men who got into the pastorate because it was easy. They thought it was soft, cushy, comfy. And they found some little country church that allowed them to do nothing as a pastor. And just to shoot straight with you, when I first moved here, this was everywhere in the area. Men giving the pastor a bad name by being lazy. Pastoring is never to be easy. Just like under rowing was never to be a relaxing task. The day that pastoring becomes an easy job is the day that it ceases to be biblical pastoring. Pastor, are you tired? Good. You're supposed to be tired. Keep on rowing. You say, wait, 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 Kyle. Maybe you should be a little more sensitive to pastors and their possible burnout from working too much. Well, that may have been a problem with previous generations of pastors. They've worked themselves into the ground, but I'm not seeing that with pastors in our day. No, pastors in our day need to be told to work harder. I remember when I first hired Daniel Hurd and some of my pastor friends would call me and then they would ask, how's it working out? And I said, he works harder than I do. I used to always be the last one to leave. Now he is. And then they'd ask, can I get his number? (laughs) And then I'd hang up on him. (laughs) And I don't hesitate telling you any of that. You need to know your pastors work long and hard to shepherd you. A pastor must work harder in the study than farmers in the field. A pastor must labor in prayer with greater intensity than a small business owner labors to get his baby off the ground. A pastor must labor to bring his people to maturity in Christ. Future pastors, spend and be spent for your flock. Verse 1, regard pastors this way, as servants of Christ, that's galley slaves, and then Paul couples it with another description And stewards of the mysteries of God. What is a steward? Are you thinking of some British butler? Perhaps an attendant on an airplane? A first century Roman steward was a house manager. He supervised the property, fields, vineyards, finances, and the slaves. However, he himself was a slave. He was simply the head slave. The master of the house picked one trusted slave and put him in charge of the household. He is the chief slave. The house is managed by him. He's given some authority. He can abuse that authority. That's a possibility. Joseph in the Old Testament was a chief steward in Potiphar's house. Paul picks another slave to give an example of how you should view pastors First, a sea slave, now a land slave. Paul picked a man who was an estate manager to analogize the work of a pastor. A steward provided food for the household. He made sure it was served out at proper times and in proper quantities. He kept the rest under lock and key. He oversaw the household budget. He paid the wages, giving out what was required. He collected debts and often led in buying and selling of property. Every Corinthian knew what a steward was. All the wealthy had them. Masters would leave them in charge when they went on long trips. Everyone in this local church knew what a galley slave and a steward were. Paul did not have to invent these categories, the Corinthians saw them all the time. A steward ran the establishment assigning members of the household certain duties. And like manner, pastors supervise the master's estate. He's gone now, but he's coming back and he will check our work. They stewarded a house. What are pastors stewarding? Another house, the household of God. Or more specifically, pastors are stewarding the mysteries of God. The mysteries of God Paul refers to here is not whether or not all our toenails that we've clipped in our lifetime will be put back on at the resurrection or whether Adam had a belly button. These are not the mysteries of God. These are not the secret things. The secret things of God pertain to Jesus Christ, his person and his work. A pastor has been entrusted with the message of Christ. And he can center on Christ or he can center on other things. He can be Christ-centered or other-centered. There's only two options. It is possible for a pastor to give his time and attention to dispersing other information. The mysteries of God are not the focus of his pulpit. Faith Family Church, as a steward of the mysteries of God... I must preach Christ to you. I have nothing else to talk about when I'm here. I may have political notions. I may have opinions on news events. But I don't have time for any of that. Only the secret things of God build the congregation. I will not I will not spend my time dispersing information on topics that have little to no consequential value. You future pastors, you may go to a church where they beg you to do that. Give me your view on everything. Pastor, even your desire to do that is intellectual pride. You're not happy unless you can express your opinion on absolutely everything. No, the pastor disperses the mysteries of God. His message is both timely and timeless because it is Christ. It is not only the person and work of Christ but also the implications of Christ. This is not a popular message. It was not created by interviewing focus groups or polling citizens. Expect the biblical Jesus and the implications of this biblical Jesus to be not well received. We are charged to represent Christ in a world ...that murdered him. Verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. A steward is someone who is not an owner. They are entrusted with the possessions of the master. The master says, I give you authority to oversee these things. The steward takes the resources and executes them to maximum effectiveness... Reliability is a necessary virtue. Pastors are accountable to God for stewarding the household of faith. We can prove ourselves unfaithful stewards by misusing our master's goods, employing what he entrusted to us for some other means. But a true pastor's heart cries, faithful to our master. Oh, don't let me be a traitor to him. In the last two Sundays, the pastor has been a farmer, a builder, a galley slave, and a house steward. We want to take all four analogies together to get the proper view. You have a blue collar analogy, a farmer. A blue and white collar analogy, the builder was both a laborer and an architect. And then you have a no collar analogy, two slave examples. Christ is the pilot of the ship. Pastors are the under rowers. Christ is the master of the house. Pastors are the stewards. Faithfulness is required in stewarding. Meaning it is absolutely necessary. Let me give an application here for pastors who preach and members who listen. An application for pastors who preach and members who listen. Success in ministry is not defined by anything. Other than faithfulness to the gospel. Success in ministry is not defined by anything other than faithfulness to the gospel. Pastor, you are not to strive to be remembered, you are to strive to be faithful. You are not to strive to be popular or well liked, you are to communicate the meaning of the biblical text. This is how faithfulness is shown. Ministers have a special calling to proclaim the gospel and to protect the gospel. They are not to be innovative or flamboyant. They don't need to be found brilliant. They need to be found faithful. Absolute fidelity to the gospel is something that is required, not hoped for. Are most pastors you know judged on the basis of faithfulness or the size of their church? Your assessment of a pastor's success must be biblical. Verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Paul writes, I may be coming up short in your judgment of me. That's okay. That doesn't wreck me. It matters very little to me what you think of me. Or where I rank in popular opinion. As clever as the Corinthians were, Paul was not answerable to them. They are not entitled to make judgments about him. He is addressing criticisms that come his way unduly. Perhaps some had accused Paul of being unfaithful. We don't know. Regardless of the specific charge, they became anti-Paul, rejecting his teaching and his authority. Paul is facing opposition from Christian brothers and sisters. And that had to be difficult for him. This point in the exposition leads us to this application for people pleasing Christians. You need to accept the fact that some Christians will dislike you. You need to accept the fact that some Christians will dislike you. They didn't like Paul. He built them, fed them, loved them, invested in them. Why are you surprised when Christians that that you barely spend time with don't like you? Can you say with Paul, I am not looking for your approval. I'm not looking for your pat on the back. That's not where I get my significance and my worth. Part of spiritual maturity is not always being paralyzed by other people's judgment of you. It's debilitating to care so much about other people's opinion. Christians should love one another. But when they don't, God's plan for the ages did not fail. Your friends will cheer you, your foes will jeer you, but in the end, both could be poison. Unhindered praise and unhindered criticism. They both train your heart that you are there to please people. But you are here to please God. You are free from living for the approval of others. This is one of the great keys to sanity in life. There are going to be differences of opinion in the family of faith. You get three Christians together and you have seven different opinions. (laughs) But at the end of the day, the only opinion that... But at the end of the day, only one opinion carries ultimate significance... Everyone has an opinion, but there's only one that matters. This text does not mean that Paul wasn't hurt by their criticism. It simply means he was unmoved by it. Joseph Parker was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon in London. In fact, guys from Spurgeon's college would sneak away and listen to Parker instead of being in service with Spurgeon. It it hurt him a lot. Joseph Parker once had a lady throw a note at him while he was preaching. That had to be distracting. I mean, even more distracting than what we went through this morning. That had to be distracting. So he went down and and, and picked it up and read it. It said, fool. Parker held it up to the congregation and said, someone wrote me a note. But they only signed their name. In essence, this is what Paul effectively said to the church at Corinth and what every pastor needs to say to his local church. I will be your servant, but you will never be my master. I will be your servant, but you will never be my master. We had an application for people-pleasing Christians, now an application for people-pleasing pastors. Paul's master is not the Corinthian congregation. It is Jesus. And he clarifies to them, ultimately, I don't answer to you. I answer to God. The approval of God means everything. The approval or disapproval of individuals within the church means very little. A church that hasn't properly been trained on how to treat and view their pastor can kill him with a thousand small requests. I have pastor friends who allow their church to do this to them. And I keep telling them, you're going to break. You have to train your people not to bring those little things to you. When you allow the church to play master, you find they are a cruel and never satisfied master. Now let me stop here and say, it is a pleasure to pastor this church. You model what a church should be so gloriously. I love, I love shepherding you. Thank you for living out this text before I even preached it. Not only did Paul sometimes find himself standing in the court of Christians, he also found himself standing in the court of the world. Verse 3, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you, Or by any human court. Paul stood before a lot of secular courts. Facing false accusations. He eventually arrived at the point where he said. No human judgment is final. Whatever they decide here is not final. God will overthrow it in the end. Human verdicts carry no weight with God. Context, verse 3, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul is not aware of anything that would disqualify him from being a steward of the mystery of God. He's evaluated his life and ministry and sees no serious sin or deficiency. As far as he can assess himself, he's been faithful to the service of the Lord. He's been a faithful farmer, a quality builder, a hard-working galley slave, and a good house manager. He's not saying he's sinless. He's saying his conscience is clear. He sleeps well, but that doesn't make him innocent He recognizes he can have a clean conscience, but his conscience could be wrong. Just because he feels blameless doesn't make him blameless. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Paul doesn't just care less about human evaluations. He doesn't even value his own evaluation. His own judgments do not even matter He's deflating any impression that he is being arrogant. He confesses, just because I think I'm innocent doesn't make me innocent. I could be grossly ignorant. My self-evaluation could be way off. Paul concedes, just because I think I'm faithful in ministry doesn't mean I am. His own subjective assessment of his ministry could be off. So he doesn't act like it's decisive. Most of us. Most of us are far too lenient when it comes to self-assessment. Even if Paul does think he is above reproach, it doesn't matter because another's evaluation is ultimate. He says, it is the Lord who judges me. This is Paul's way of saying, I am not the final judge of me and neither are you. Which leads us to this, there is freedom in knowing who your ultimate judge is. There is freedom in knowing who your ultimate judge is. This is both a reminder of human accountability and a liberating release from being captive to the opinions of others. Paul doesn't play God nor allow anyone else to play God. You don't see this situation clearly. I may not see this situation clearly, but I know one who has eyes of fire. He sees it perfectly. There is only one true judge. Now, there are four courts in the book. Four judgments in the book. Did did you catch them? The world's judgment, that's the human court. The Christian's judgment, that's the church at Corinth's court lobbing all sorts of accusations at Paul. The third court is your own court. Paul's saying he doesn't judge himself. He knows he's an imperfect judge. And then finally, God's court, the judgment of God. Paul tells the church, God will determine if I was faithful, not you. The final evaluation of a pastor's faithfulness belongs to God and God alone. Only God can properly evaluate the worth of a ministry. Now, allow me to take a quick sidebar with you. I want you to notice that Paul refused to engage in constant introspection and perpetual hand-wringing. There is a healthy spiritual evaluation of yourself, and then there is an unhealthy introspection. Too much introspection can negate usefulness, constantly overanalyzing every action, And certain personalities can terrorize themselves with this. When you are constantly looking inward, you can't look to Jesus and say, I rest in your evaluation. In your evaluation alone. Verse 5. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul says, if I'm wrong, the Lord will make it known at the second coming. Evidently, the, Corinthians, the Corinthian church launched frivolous, rash criticism after frivolous, rash criticism at Paul and the other pastors. And Paul says, hey, don't jump to conclusions with your judgments before all the evidence is in. Don't write me off. You're judging too prematurely. You're hasty in your conclusions. Faith Family Church, concerning your pastors, you must refrain from standing in judgment over them. The Lord will. Learn not to rush into making judgments without knowing all the facts. Inflating or deflating reputations based on mere hearsay. Verse 5, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time Before the Lord comes. On the last day. When Jesus comes back. When we see our Savior. On that great day. Judgment will accompany revelation. His judgment. Will expose everything. Verse 5 says. He will bring to light. The things now hidden in darkness. And he will disclose. The purposes of the heart. This is true of pastors. And it's equally true of all Christians. God will evaluate our inner motives. He will expose, bring to light things that we couldn't know or see. The inner recesses of your thoughts. He will wade through the seething swamp of sin that is our hearts and throw stuff on the banks. Things presently unknown to us will be fished up. This image It's a word picture. It speaks of painstaking and meticulous scrutiny. God really knows your heart. You don't. There are heart motivations we cannot measure. Verse, the end of verse five, then each one will receive his commendation from God. The ultimate praise comes from God. God doles out rewards. Leave it in his hands. Some of you have been in churches where a deacon board or a committee or some group or board, those things we don't have in this church, have heard a pastor. And it scared you just seeing it from a distance. Comfort your heart with this truth, friend. God doles out rewards. Nothing will go unrewarded. The pastor's labor was not in vain. Rewards in the future will not be based as much on what we did, but why we did it. It seems motive is key. Verse 6. Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Paul moves here from the defensive to the offensive. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. What are these things? What does he mean by these things? Everything taught in the previous three chapters. Paul informs, I have used myself and Apollos as illustrations. We are examples of church leadership. We don't make up all church leadership throughout the ages, but I put us as examples. I put blue jean overalls on Apollos and me to show you how pastoring is like farming. I put yellow hard hats on Apollos and me to demonstrate to you how pastoring is like building. I put an oar in my hand and Apollos' to show you how pastoring is hard, non-flashy work. I put a head steward name tag on Apollos and me to demonstrate how pastoring is like estate managing. Verse 6, That you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. This church is not to go beyond what is written. What was written? Well, I think it's this. Up until this point in the book, Paul's mentioned five or six different Old Testament texts. Two from Isaiah, one from Jeremiah, one from Job, one from the book of Psalms. He could be referring to the cumulative force of these quotations. This letter was read publicly in one sitting and and would have caught the Old Testament and, and they would have caught the Old Testament quotations as they were given. Don't go beyond these five or six Old Testament quotations. Don't go beyond the Old Testament. Don't go beyond Scripture. If the Bible doesn't say it, don't say it. We don't need independent gurus spewing nonsense. Scripture must remain the final authority the metaphorical supreme court of the church, God has, given us, God has given us sufficiency in his word. We don't need to go beyond it. This church had a tendency to go beyond scripture. To okay some things, scripture did not okay. They were judging pastors in ways that scripture did not permit. They were going beyond scripture and judging people not applying the parameters of Scripture to their judgment. And then he says, verse 6, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Paul summarizes what the five or six Old Testament quotations were about. Pride and arrogance. Why do you elevate yourself above others? Why do you feel significant by tearing other people down? There is an insecurity and inferiority complex going on in this church. This word, puffed up, comes from the Greek word bellows, which was a collapsible device used for pumping air into something. Why are you puffed up, inflated, flaunting yourself over other people? They had fat heads. Your your arrogant claims of wisdom and rhetorical skill are inflating you, pumping you with air. You're like a a puffed-up bullfrog. Ellsworth says, Pride is never more sickening than when it shows up in the life of a Christian. It's totally out of place there because it contradicts the teaching of grace. Grace produces humility. The fall has given us too high a view of ourselves and too low a view of others. To drive the point home, Paul asks some humbling questions. Verse 7, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The right question can make all the difference. And these are heart-altering questions. And Lord, may you alter our hearts by these questions. Paul pulls three sharp arrows from his quiver and shoots his target dead center. Three questions. Who, what, why? Who? Who sees anything different in you? They were full of pride congratulating themselves on their spiritual insight, their gifts. They were a proud church, a prestigious church, and a problem church. Paul puts his finger on the problem Disgusting arrogance and pride are the root of all of this. Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have to be proud about? Self congratulatory behavior is disgusting, it's off putting and unbecoming of the Christ we serve. You are responsible for the, you, you are not responsible. For, for the production of these gifts. You, you possess some gifting, but did you create it? Who, what, why? If then you have received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You possess only what the Lord has given you. You can't take credit for your own gifting. Everything you have, everything you are, are sheer gifts from God. Gifts should exalt the giver, not the recipient. God gave the church at Corinth gifts and they said, thank me. Who says, who acknowledges a gift by saying, thank me? These questions are intending to have a humbling effect on your soul. Don't brag about what you have like some bratty trust fund kid. One pastor said it like this, we are a bunch of beggars with our hands out and then God fills our hands, and the last thing we should say is, Look at what I have. Look at who I am. Look at what I've done. Are you incredibly brilliant? Who made you that way? You say, I studied hard. Who gave you the ability to study? Who gave you those opportunities to get into the master's program? We live in a world in which we are constantly tempted to compare ourselves with others. Either consciously or subconsciously. Are you a successful business owner? You make a lot of money. How did that happen? You say, I'll tell you exactly how it happened. A lot of grinding and making some good decisions at the right moment. Who gave you the good health to work those hours? And honestly, some of the fruit of your success is upbringing that bred discipline and responsibility. You have borrowed everything. How dare you think you created it? If God had not made you differ, if God had not made you differ, any differences among you can only be contributed to God. The preacher, John Knox, who was, interestingly enough, once a galley slave. John Knox, on his last Sunday night before he died, he said he was tempted to trust in himself, but he repulsed the devil with this sentence. What do I have that I did not receive? You are smart, because God did not give you a learning disability. You are a great public speaker because God didn't give you a lisp. The Lord has made one athletic while another is born cripple. The Lord made one physically beautiful while another is born with facial deformities. One woman is born with a silver spoon in her mouth and another in an abusive home. You contributed, you contributed nothing To you not being born blind or deaf or deformed. Lady, why so prideful and talking about your parenting or your homeschooling or your children? Lady, why so boastful about your skin or your hair or your decorating skills? You have a certain body shape. Who gave you those genetics? It is unbecoming of the Christ who died to redeem your wicked soul. This is one of the most beautiful flurry of questions in the Bible. And it leads us to a single sentence. Paul's theology in four short words. Are you ready for it? It's stunning. That's how beautiful these four words are. Here it is. All is of grace. All is of grace. Nothing earned, nothing is deserved, all is of grace. It's God who differentiates you and it is God who defines you. And I'll leave you with this last truth. You have nothing to boast about other than God and His sovereign grace. You have nothing to boast about other than God and his sovereign grace. When you extol yourself, you play the fool. When you brag, you rob God of his glory. When you take credit, you boast in front of a God who made every cell in your body. Augustine, Augustine used this text often in proclaiming the, the total depravity of man against the Pelagians. He knew that the word taught there is nothing good in us except what we have received from God. Father, we repent of our sin of pride. We are arrogant. We take credit for gifts you have given us. We look down on others. We judge and not in biblical ways. We judge like these Corinthians outside the perimeters of Scripture. We plead the blood of Christ over our sin. Amen.